Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to have another great two-guest episode today. And today we're going to talk all about the future of medical research, how things are changing today due to some of the restrictions in place as a result of COVID-19, and uh, which of these changes the guests think are likely to stick in the future, um, including things like new digital ways of collecting data, at-home testing, new models for medical research and clinical trials. Um, so we have two amazing guests today. One is Paul Wicks, who's actually been on a previous episode of the podcast. He is our first repeat guest. Um, so Paul's a scientific vi- advisor to a number of different digital health companies, Sanogenetics uh, being one of them. So previously, Paul was the VP of Innovation at Patients Like Me, which is at the time, probably the world's largest patient social network and one of the first large-scale platforms that allowed patients to share knowledge and connect with one another and get involved in research. So the second guest is Liam Eaves, who also recently joined the team here at Sano, and he's worked in medical research and life sciences for about 15 years in a number of different parts of the clinical trial ecosystem, including working at CROs, site management companies, um, and a number of different companies innovating specifically in remote clinical trials. Um, Liam also has experience in virology, so hopefully we get a chance to touch on some of the challenges around vaccine development uh, that the world is facing at a very rapid pace right now. So thanks both of you for for joining and looking forward to it. Good to be here. Great. So if we just kick off, um, I wonder if we could start with a very high-level discussion. Uh, maybe, Paul, you can go first. How are you seeing COVID-19 affecting medical research, um, whether it's early stage, clinical trials, or or across the board? Well, thanks, Patrick. Well, I suppose there's two sides to it. There's the researcher side and, and there's the patient side. So from the researcher side, we're seeing medical personnel being pulled away from their typical activities to be redeployed on the front line, or we're seeing interruptions to their normal rotors and schedules in order to cope with uh, new bottlenecks and uh, new ways of working that are slower or less efficient because of PPE, staff shortages, or uh relatively frequent changes in guidelines from the government, which are often quite hard to react to when uh, the staff responsible for implementing them are hearing about them at the same time as the general public. So clearly that's uh, very challenging. I think from the patient side, it's worth just thinking for a second what a clinical trial is for them. It's also, you know, uh, pre-COVID-19, a massive interruption to their daily lives. And when we look at most of the clinical trials uh, that are around today, we're talking about quite substantial changes to their daily life. So If you have a chronic condition uh, or a life-threatening condition like cancer, um, you are generally being asked to to travel quite a lot to sites uh, for a number of visits over quite a prolonged period of time. And say in the course of, say, a two-year study, you could be coming to sites maybe a dozen times. You could be doing some things at home like electronic diaries. And at certain intervals uh, across that period, you might be asked to have some special procedures. That could be brain scans. It could be blood draws. Um, and, and there's quite a high burden with a lot of travel. Now, if you think of the disruption that COVID has, has brought, uh, you know, up until recently, a lot of people weren't allowed to leave their homes. Many of the conditions for which we are doing clinical trials are for chronic conditions where those patients are by definition shielded. Or in many cases, with immunosuppressant drugs or some of the biologics that we see for autoimmune conditions like lupus or psoriasis, they may become shielded by virtue of taking immunosuppressant drugs. So it's a really difficult set of things to balance on on both those sides of the equation. 
When you say shielded, um, what do you mean, Paul? I know that's an acronym, right? But I don't actually know what it stands for. So I think um, in the UK, at least, there's a, a subset of people subdefined by age. So, for example, uh, being over the age of 70, you're encouraged to, to stay at home, uh, you know, sort of despite relative easings of other things. But then there's also a group of people and they've been defined by various ways, um, hopefully usually via their GP, who have medical conditions that mean that they may be particularly susceptible. Uh, right. So, for example, people with an autoimmune condition like Crohn's disease, who might be on drugs like anti-TNF, um, could be at higher risk uh, from infection because their immune system is is being suppressed by the medication they're taking. And so these lists have been generated. They've been a bit fuzzy, I should say. Actually, at one point, motor neuron disease was not on that list. And the Motor Neuron Disease Association had to lobby the government uh, to get on the list, which when you think that their main issue um, from a mortality point of view is respiratory failure, it's nuts that they didn't get on that list. Um, but it just goes to show you how, how challenging and you know, uh, difficult it is when there are 7,000 medical conditions out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Liam, I wonder if you could, since you've worked at a number of the different uh, key moving parts in a clinical trial, if you could maybe talk through what a typical clinical trial looks like from the perspective of a, of a patient and, and maybe highlight some of the biggest disruptions right now. Sure, sure. So um, basically, uh, typically the, the patient's journey, I think, is probably the easiest way to look through um, that particular lens is that individuals will find out about a clinical trial, usually through their doctors or from advertisements in which the, the, the doctor will take them through their options um, in regards to receiving an investigational drug. A patient then gets some information um, to decide whether this is something they want to uh, move forward with. There's always a risk, of course, depending on the, the design of the actual trial in which that they'll receive a drug or what's known as a placebo, uh, which is if we can effectively think of that as um, you know a sugar pill that doesn't do anything. So um, what typically happens after that is if the patient uh, wants to be engaged in that particular study, they'll be asked to consent to the study and then they'll go through a period of time which when they will visit a site at set times uh, to be involved in certain procedures. And this can be anything from blood draws to uh, cognitive tests. So testing memory, let's say, for people with Alzheimer's or if it was um, something like MS, uh, we would be looking at um, function um, of limbs and things like that for spasticity, let's say. And then what happens is the researcher who is asking those questions or generating those samples is typically creating, you know, pulling that data together in a file for the patient. That file then uh, collected with lots of other files from different groups is then shipped off to the, um, the sponsor, the pharmaceutical company, who will then collect all that information and to determine whether that drug has had an impact on the patient uh, group. So there's, there's a lot of benefits for uh, patients to be involved in research, uh, particularly if there is limited access um, to treatments within their condition or alternatively treatments aren't having any benefit for them. Um, so we, we often find that, you know, that there is a, gr a group, big group of people, the, the vast majority, in fact, that are doing it to uh, get benefit uh, from the medication. 
Uh, but then you also find that there's a, another subset that is doing it for altruistic reasons to try and help the community as a whole as well. So it, it, I think it's fair to say that there's a large subset of these clinical trials that have been effectively frozen in time, stopped in their tracks, because um, if, if we take an autoimmune condition, for example, it's not safe for patients to be traveling to sites. Do you all think that within a period of a few months, basically everything will return to normal and these trials will more or less restart? Or, or are we seeing a large scale shift to remote clinical trials where maybe nurses or doctors are visiting patients at home or some subset of tests are being administered at home to, to try to reduce the amount of travel that patients have to take? I think one of the challenges that we see specifically to clinical trials are that many of the procedures that need to take place are not necessarily those that are suitable for, say, telemedicine visits. So, for example, to, to get a, a blood draw that we then need to get to the lab and have processed and spun out and you know mixed with reagents in a particular way in a particular time window, it's very challenging to do with nurse visits. I've worked in projects uh, before in the past where we were trying to collect blood um, to spin out stem cells, for example, and they need to be centrifuged very precisely within two hours, otherwise the sample is lost. So that's much easier to do in a hospital environment much more consistently uh, than, than by home visits. I think the other challenges is some of the procedures mentioned and uh, things like spasticity that, that Leah mentioned, you need to touch the patient, you need to get up close and move their arms and move their legs and lie them down. Um, or even with cognitive testing using an iPad, you know, think of all the surfaces you now need to have a policy in place to, to sterilize, to clean, um, and all the different members of staff that, that might come into contact with that person. I think specifically, I would be very worried if I was running trials in asthma, COPD, IPF, things like that, because one of the tests that's really important is a spirometry test where you get this thing that looks like a sort of high-tech toilet tube, and you have to take a deep, deep breath and blow as hard as you can for a few seconds whilst the little sensor detects how hard you're blowing. That is a perfect example of something that from the point of view of you know, aerosol, um, little droplets in the air that come out of your, your lungs, is a challenging uh, thing to deal with, particularly in enclosed rooms with poor ventilation, as, uh, as some hospitals and, and other test rooms can, can be. So it may be different, different mechanisms of action have, have different, uh, you know, sort of susceptibility to the trials being halted. Conversely, many of the people I work with in digital health seeing this as an opportunity. Many of these are in, say, mood disorders, where a lot of the assessment would come from a clinical interview that could be done you know, over a video chat, or from patient-reported outcomes that can use validated questionnaires and have that data collected through the mobile phone, for example. So I think the disruption will not be distributed evenly. Yeah, and I think just to add on that, you know, we are seeing that there's around 65% of sites are actually uh, closing or should I say slowing down so they're having skeleton staff actually producing so to uh, Paul's earlier point they're being redeployed or actually not being able to visit the site. I think where technology really does come to play in this and just echo Paul's point which is around the telephone uh, you know screening I think there's some stuff we can do for measuring certain uh, parameters but I think that they're all typically quite exploratory so a lot of the things that we're seeing around remote monitoring is actually you know patient reported outcomes are usually a secondary reported outcome not primary uh, we have had a, a study recently that's been the first patient reported outcome uh, that has been accepted but that's not common um, it's not common within the industry and um, so I think that the technology the easy to to do stuff 
the telephone, the you know, the the Skype, Zoom type stuff is definitely something that will help. Uh, but I think we've got a long way to go for to try and really bundle these pieces together to create a fully virtual uh, study. Yeah, it seems like the examples of fully virtual trials are are relatively few and far between because of some of these things that are if you need an MRI machine at the moment, there's not a cost-effective way to do that at home. But Paul, I know that while you were at Patients Like Me, you were involved in something pretty close to a fully virtual trial in, in ALS. Is that right? Yes. So we were uh, collaborating with Duke University in North Carolina, and we were really interested to see if we could run uh, what we call a hybrid virtual study. And this was a stepping stone on the way to a fully virtual study. So we've been talking about a traditional sort of bricks and mortar, real world uh, study, if you will. So a fully virtual study to take the opposite extreme would be one where the patient is at home the whole time, finds out about a trial, maybe through their doctor, but but equally, maybe they stumble upon it themselves, or they're targeted through advertising on places that they visit on the internet. They're screened from, from home using telephone interviews. You could imagine um, specimen collection where they might be sent a tube to collect saliva, or even now more of us are becoming increasingly familiar with pricking our, our fingers and bleeding into a little collection unit and sending that back in the post, or to sort of have wearable devices for a period of time that now increasingly can do everything from measure our you know, heart rate to even have sort of little portable ECGs and that type of thing. And that then if they were successfully enrolled, having done their informed consent and sort of learning about the trial, that they would be sent study medication in the post. Again, this is easier when it's a little white pill that you take every day, as opposed to some you know complicated chemical infusion that needs to stay in a cold chain, for example, you know, you would then uh, take your medication and submit your outcome data through a mobile phone or, or, or through other technology, and that over the course of a year or two, you know, we'd have enough data. So we took an inter a sort of intermediate step, because we didn't yet know what we didn't know. And so we did um, a lot of it virtually, but we enrolled people through a single site at Duke. So we knew all the patients had ALS, because it's a difficult diagnosis to make. And then we did all the in real world stuff that we had to do. So they were weighed in a consistent way, because by the way, if you just ask everyone to weigh themselves, some people put their clothes on, some people don't. Some people step on the weighing scale three times to get the answer they want. And people have different you know, levels of sensitivity to their weighing scales. You know, stuff like this can matter. Um, but also to uh, you know, make sure that they were sort of under the care of a clinician and that they fully understood what you know, the safety risk would be and what to do in the case of emergency. And then we sent them on their way with a year supply of study medication. And they went and did all the uh, procedures and data collection at home for a year and actually didn't come back to the clinic until the end of, of the study. So we did that with um, 50 patients with, with ALS or motor neuron disease over the course of 12 months. And, and very sadly, the, the intervention that we were trying did not work, did not halt the progression of the condition. But there we, we also had the slightly different step that rather than have a placebo, we actually use historical control data. And, you know, this is one of the conditions where because it's sadly so relentlessly progressive, if something were to have a miraculous effect and really halt the condition in its tracks or even show an improvement, you actually can detect that against sort of historical norms. Most diseases aren't really like that. Um, and, you know, in the conditions where we have better lab and blood markers, for example, especially in oncology, you know, doing trials in hospital settings is is, is much more appropriate. But, you know, we learned a lot uh, along the way. Um, there have been other sort of study groups that have shared their experiences. But what you'll find is that there's tons of barriers within the traditional medical research establishment. So how do you get ethics approval for this? How do you, you know, prove the data provenance? How do you recruit enough people? And how do you keep them engaged? You know, a large part of our efforts were 
around creating that patient journey because if it's not tied into their regular clinic visits and you know they're not going to have a relationship with say a study nurse who are often you know great great to interact with and, and give you other care benefits and that type of thing how do you keep people engaged and so we were using things like email campaigns sending out reminder cards that, with little magnets to stick to their fridge to remember about you know staying up to date on their protocol but it presents a different a different set of challenges certainly and and this you know uh... These these uh, remote monitoring or virtual trials that you know they, I think the first one that was fully uh, virtual was um, was Pfizer's remote study in around 2011. So the idea has been around for a long time. A lot of the time is to the challenges that Paul mentioned is about industry adoption. You know Pfizer is a great one with the remote trial. You know they they used it in. Um, overactive bladder which obviously occurs in the elderly and it's like okay well why try your first study in a in an elderly population that's perhaps not too familiar with the technology so there's there's a lot of um, it's obviously a very conservative industry as a whole and, and things do take an ordinate amount of time to move through you know hopefully that covid will be one of the bigger innovators shall we say within our industry and um, we can sort of keep the trajectory uh, up, but you know, time will tell. So I noticed an interesting exclusion criteria on an actively enrolling clinical trial the other day, which was that you couldn't take part in the study if you'd recently had a vaccine. And that was because this intervention could affect your immune system in unpredictable ways. And so I thought, well, this may present a challenge because what the world is waiting for now is a COVID-19 vaccine. We don't have one right now, but many of these trials that take two, three, four, five years even, might be causing some problems later down the road when a participant has to decide, do I want to stay in the study or would I like a chance at getting a vaccine for COVID-19, which could actually have a much bigger impact on my health? And just the, the whole vaccine, I mean, the amount of activity that's now, okay, there's something like, I was amazed, there's something like 1,500 studies that were going on for COVID now. You know, so as much as research has started to be for other conditions have started to be halted, there's a huge boom in the in the COVID research. So it would be interesting actually to see, you know, how much uh, as much of these sites that have closed down. There's still a lot that's happening uh, around this space. So it's yeah, I, I agree, Paul, to your point around the uh, vaccine stuff because that that's quite common, right? In in a lot of these conditions, be interesting. Let's dig into that a little more with, um, I think basically every pharmaceutical or biotechnology company has at this point taken a look at the compounds they have or things they've developed to see if there's anything that could help. Do you all have any idea of what percentage of the organization is working on things like this? Is it a small group and they're saying, you know, we have to do this because, you know, it's, it's something that if we're sitting on a possible cure or treatment, we need to have it out there, or is it that 20% of GSK or Pfizer is being redirected from what they were doing before to kind of go all, all hands on deck with COVID? The only one, I, I can only speak from a couple of conversations, but what seems to be happening, certainly with the big pharma, is that they initially mobilized a lot of staff to get their heads around actually what could they take forward, you know, what could they resurrect uh, from the shelves and, and so forth and, and got the thinkers uh, together. I think that now it's about mobilizing around the clinical ops to actually get the compounds out. So that's certainly the trend that 
that I've seen from speaking to people. But I don't know if Paul, if if you heard any different or. Well, certainly as lockdown came into force, um, a lot of companies that I was speaking to were talking more about business continuation as being the the priority. So obviously, you know, we're talking here about the R&D side and, and new technologies, but, you know, bluntly 99% of R&D trials fail. Um, so it's it's always been very difficult. And so, you know, the other half of, of the company is commercial. And, you know, we take it for granted that the little white pills that come to us in our pharmacy are all consistent, reliable. But the truth is they are made from a bunch of different chemicals from a bunch of different countries that all have to be stored very carefully and moved around. And um, and I've, I've toured the production lines of some of these facilities where things are being packaged up and you know, quality control. And, and the truth is it takes a lot of labor. And if, you know, a third of them are going off with uh, self-isolation or having childcare issues or what have you, you actually just have business continuity issues in making sure that your supply chain is able to deliver. One of the things they're increasingly doing is, is using their data and informatics sensors to try and understand the, the epidemiology of, of the virus across different regions. And one of the things that's intriguing is particularly as many trials now are in multiple countries at once, that it might be sensible to reopen clinical operations and trial operations in those countries that most have their COVID under control. Uh, so, for example, I, I wonder if New Zealand is suddenly going to be the beneficiary of an awful lot of research. And speaking from the UK, I have grave concerns that the way in which our response uh, has gone is probably not going to be a great endorsement for doing things in the UK, which is which is a great shame, seeing how many people have been actively working to make the UK a more attractive place to come and do research. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I think New Zealand's been at zero new cases a day for a couple of weeks now, right? So they could be a, a very good spot to resume or start your study. Liam, I was wondering if you've worked on flu vaccines before, I wonder if you could tell us exactly what's involved in developing a new vaccine or antiviral from the perspective of actually testing it to prove that it works, that it's safe. Is it completely um, impossible to have one of these within the next 12 months or or 18 months, or is it actually doable with uh, so many people working on it? I think that it's, it's not impossible. I think it's probably unlikely uh, to have one in the next 12 months, you know, it's probably more likely if we are lucky enough to stumble upon something that works uh, more towards the 18 months, 24 month time frame. It's amazing how fast can things can get done, certainly from a regulatory perspective of when you've got these fast track compounds. In terms of how these vaccines are typically tested uh, on the patients, and again, I guess looking through the eyes of the patient, is that you would typically, I think it is, it's more likely to have medication to help dampen the symptoms rather than a vaccine against it, uh, firstly. So I think that from a vaccination standpoint, typically how these are conducted is that you would run a challenge study. So you have to, obviously, because a vaccine is there to protect, you would bring people who are otherwise healthy, uh, given the vaccination, and then a few days later, you would then infect them with the virus. And so obviously this is hugely, uh, you have to be hugely careful about the type of person that you're bringing on. And then they would stay in an isolation unit. So, you know, a bed, uh, a room uh, where nurses would be checking on them. You know, they would be wired up to ECGs and, and all the rest of the parameters 
and then you would be taking data to understand actually, you know, are they okay for one safety first? And then, you know, what is the impact? Are they showing symptoms uh, and so on and so forth? And then only when they are finished shedding the virus, would they then be allowed to go home? So there'd be a number of tests around the virus to see whether they are in fact still infected um, before them being released. And again, just like every other trial, that data would then be compiled and, and we would find out whether it would work or not. The timelines are typically, you know, you can do these challenge and I've got experience, a lot of experience in, in actually doing these and running these within a pretty short period of time. So from actually designing the trial to having data out being less than 12 months, but then there's a, there's obviously even the fastest, you know, case you'd have to set those up, run the trial and then go through all the data analysis, regulatory discussions and so on and so forth. And then to, you know, Paul's early point about manufacturing that, that takes an inordinate amount of time. So the chances are slim, uh, I would say to have it anytime soon. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, um, some things that are just very difficult to do quickly, right? You need, there's a finite amount of time that's taken because the, I know there have been examples in the past where vaccines have actually proved to make, make it worse, right? It, um, it actually causes, uh, people to be more likely to be infected. So you have to very carefully test these things. It's such a complicated, you know, it's viruses as a whole are, are so complicated because they have the ability to adapt, right? And, and that's why a lot of these, you know, we don't have flu vaccine, you know, we don't have our flu vaccinations. We, we still get, you know, sick. Uh, you know, and a lot of the vaccinations, it's just about choosing. They, you can almost see the virus having a branching points in which they adapt. And that actually, if you've been given a vaccine for one branch of the tree, but then, a vac- you know, as virus from the same tree, but from a different branch impacts you, then you're going to get sick. So it's, um, they're, they're not simple, you know, they're not simple things to just create. I think it's going to be extremely difficult, but hopefully, hopefully there's some optimism. What do you think, Paul? Do you uh, largely agree? I know you're, you've not run virology trials, but what's your feeling on whether this is likely to be a protracted battle or, or not? Well, unfortunately, they are, uh, as Liam said, one of the things that just takes the most time uh, to develop relative to, to many other medicines. And, and sadly, if you look at the sort of corporate aspects of vaccine versus little white pills or biologic drugs or oncology drugs. Unfortunately, Wall Street has not found vaccines all that attractive. And so in turn, a lot of companies have been disincentivized to develop vaccines. And so we see people like, you know, the Wellcome Trust and the Melinda Gates Foundation having to step in to some extent to fill that that funding void. Maybe a a slightly different point on vaccines. And I I feel like I'm starting to become guilty of uh, being a bit of a doomsayer here. But a couple of weeks ago, the WHO pointed out that some 80 million children are now at risk because of vaccine programs that have been paused. So, you know, we, we have to have a think for a second about what we considered our baseline of vaccination levels of, as being, you know, 12 months ago, for example, in the developed world and uh, and elsewhere for things like measles and, and, and mumps. But, but you know, uh, the WHO was particularly concerned about uh, conditions like uh, diphtheria, for example. And so, you know, our assumptions about what, you know, pre-COVID mortality and morbidity might be anywhere in the general population are probably going to have to be changed somewhat. So I think, you know, my fear 
is that for people living with a condition now that could have benefited from being in a clinical trial if this hadn't happened, we may just essentially put some things on pause. Now, from a research point of view and from a science point of view, that's not so big a deal, right? That means we can just sort of, you know, hit the reset switch in 2024 and, and pick up our science projects. But if you're part of that cohort that's just being diagnosed with a life-changing illness, uh, or as, as Liam was saying, that that trial was giving you access to extra care, extra surveillance, uh, you know, potentially a path to getting treatment that would have been unavailable to you before, that's going to be a sort of lost generation of, of patients. And, and that gap could be a number of years. And so I think one of the questions we have to figure out is how much of a priority is it to get these things spinning back up again? The risk is that the science ends up not being good if we spin it up too quickly, right? So depending on the condition you're talking about, obviously, if something's relatively mild, you know, if we're talking about the size of your rash um, being a centimeter smaller on this cream or something like that, that's very different to talking about, you know, the likelihood that someone may die of pneumonia, for example, um, in, uh, in a neurodegenerative condition. So with those, that baseline risk just changed so dramatically, there's a risk that if we spin things up too early, we are wasting hundreds of millions of dollars in these trials, sometimes billions, and then not getting out a valid answer at the end. It's sort of risk risk on all sides, really. And so you can understand why some people would want to pause and come back later. That does mean, though, that the participants that, that are sadly in the position where they can't enroll in trials or, or where it's paused, um, I think need to be made aware of that, need to be informed of that, need to have an honest conversation, particularly with the funders who pay for these things and the sponsors, to sort of outline um, you know, why decisions are being made. Because I think without that, that trust and that communication, if they're hoping to just you know, reopen shop in a couple of years time, they may find out that trust in the community and that relationship has been lost. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I guess leading off of that, Paul or Liam, what are the things that we as a scientific community need to be doing now? It sounds like we all agree that we're going to be in a multi-year long um, dance with potentially developing antivirals or vaccines, but probably more likely developing strategies to safely move people around, conduct trials in or other research in places where, you know, it's it's not a, a hot spot at the moment. What is it that you all think we need to be doing more of? And, or what are the innovations that are happening now that will stick? And maybe what are the ones that are a little bit more short-term flash in the pan while we handle the acute phase of the pandemic? Certainly from my perspective, I think that technology can play a massive part in enabling this. Um, I think making the a huge assumption here that, you know, throughout this technology trajectory that we're on, it will continue and it will continue on pace. Um, one of the things that I'm really mindful of is that, and a question that comes to me quite, quite frequently is that once we do start to go back to a level of normality, you know, will we have adopted the technology long enough for it to uh, stay put or will it be just as it's usually as for humans, right, is to jump back into the, the old ways of working. So I think that the COVID does act and, you know, has acted as somewhat of an innovator. I think that, you know, it does stand to reason that technology will play a bigger part. And, um, you know, hopefully it's not, as you mentioned, that flash in the pan. You know, for me, is I see sort of like as a framework, like three ways in which they can really impact how we do things. One is them is around sort of engagement and, and better how we collaborate and work with uh, patients. Um, another is around the sort of technology innovation 
around how we're going about collecting these data points. And then the third one is around the sort of execution. So those, you know, if, if you will, the, the efficiencies and optimizing the, the trial time and costs, uh, for a lot of these, these organizations. So, you know, things like with the engagement and it is something that, you know, Sano does very well is that how do you engage and keep those patients up to date with information, which is of huge value, um, you know, not just for retention, but for just general community awareness, because a lot of people still are oh, clinical trials are an option. I think that sort of like around the innovation, there's so and, and the sort of technology innovation, there's so many different avenues to this that we can we could sort of go down. You know, ranging from things like you know we was talking about it previously about the endpoints and actually how does technology, how can we use validated technology to not only just be using for secondary and exploratory endpoints, but also those primary. And then the, the third one, which I'm hugely passionate about, is that. The execution of it and, and around this, say, the, the gain in the efficiencies and, you know, whether you're using technologies and, it, you know, it often it coincides with the engagement of the, the patients and also the sites, you know, and how we can be continue to run in those, those studies. My view in the short term, at least, is that we'll see a lot more hybrid trials in which they're actually, as opposed to coming to the clinic for patients 12 times, you know, once a month, We'll see every other month and we'll see those, you know, second months being more virtual. And I think that that's probably, you know, the, the crawl stage that the industry as a whole will, will be in uh, for a period of time until it becomes, you know, quite second nature. Yes, I would agree with all those points. And, um, you know, I think in the short term, as been mentioned already, if I were to put my, my chips somewhere, it would be to, you know, reallocate recruitment to those countries that have the virus most under control because those are both um, going to have their clinical operations back to normal sooner and the baseline risk of those populations will be you could treat them as normal and so that's just scientifically and operationally going to be much more likely to succeed. A point on the protocols, I've done some work in the past on about 30 studies where we would take aspects of a clinical protocol like please come to the site 12 times a year and there's a 50-50 chance placebo and we'd like to do all these experimental tests to you. And when we ask patients which one of these encourage you to take part, which ones of these discourage you, and we would find that, for example, some procedures like having a salivary gland biopsy or having something scraped out the back of your lung um, would really be off-putting to patients, you'd often find that when you present that data back to the researchers and say you might not enroll your trial if you insist on having that procedure, they're actually willing to take it out. So I believe we may be able to simplify some of our protocols by actually saying, look, everybody, if we're really serious about this, how much does this secondary endpoint matter to you? It may be scientifically interesting to go and you know, do the histology on a salivary gland. But it's horrible for patients. It's a high risk procedure. Um, it's not the primary intent of the trial. And so if we were to take this out, you know, it, it just reduces the risk, increases the likelihood that we can get things done because we just can't assume that a, people are as willing to go through these things, and B, we can't uh, rely on all the moving parts that would need to be in place uh, for that to be true, to, to be in place. Um, so, you know, other than that, uh, in the short term, we've already seen a sort of spinning up in digital therapeutics. So the FDA, for example, has reduced some of the oversight, um, not in a dangerous way, but just to remove some of the burden on psychiatric digital therapeutics. Um, so this would be the use of, say, cognitive behavioral therapy or, uh, you know, other um, well-structured, well-known interventions that are known to be safe and efficacious. And so that's a way in which we're seeing relatively low risk 
um, interventions to be deployed, and we're seeing dozens of trials all over the US for that. In the medium term, though, um, you know, we can't stop doing research. It may be, uh, and it may be more likely than not, that we are all going to live our lives for the next generation in a world with COVID-19. And therefore, it would be unrepresentative of the populations where treatments are needed to not acknowledge that that's going to be a reality. Um, sadly, particularly in, in the US and the UK, where the, the responses have not been able to get under control for various reasons, um, I, I think that's going to be a reality. Um, perhaps the use of something more like real-world evidence uh, could be useful. So we could run these uh, studies, these controlled studies in the countries where the R number is lower, but insist on the use of real-world evidence and continuous surveillance through electronic medical records and phase four studies and this type of thing to keep a close eye on whether or not the treatments perform differently in other countries. That's probably a sensible idea anyway. Um, but, you know, making this part of the regulatory approval process, you know, condition for approval, although potentially more burdensome, would give us a lot more information, particularly if there are treatments that might make you more vulnerable, for example, to this form of infection. Yeah, absolutely. Is the data available to do that in most countries? Uh, it's probably a huge level of difference between UK, US, other places, right? Who is it that actually has the data to do these real-world evidence studies? Does it need to be the NHS? Is it private companies that have access to this data or or is it patients themselves? It's a great question. You know, right now it's actually private companies that are aggregating more of that information. The one thing I will say that COVID has has done to make that easier is you know there have been for a long time these battles between people that hold on to electronic medical records and keep the very proprietary structure of that data such that it can't be transferred sometimes within a hospital between different departments never mind with other hospitals and there's in the states been sort of a big battle between the entrenched companies that own the rights and, and have a large installed user base in those hospitals and the newer tech companies you know the apples and googles of the world who want to disrupt that space and make it much easier I think in a scenario where people have been contact tracing or, you know, you could have um, someone who was infected in Italy, went to a conference in Boston and then went to Indiana. Suddenly, I think a lot of the excuses for why that medical record can't be transferred are disappearing. So that will be easier. It is still going to take a lot of time. And obviously, real world evidence is incredibly messy, particularly when, you know, there are inequalities in who has access to different forms of care. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a long, longer term solution. My hope is if we're lucky, that type of real world evidence might even uncover some treatments that have a beneficial effect, a protective effect against the virus. But we'll just have to wait and see um, you know, where those might be. I'm mindful of both of your time. I was thinking to close out here uh, a final question. If you all could just take a moment and think about the most exciting new initiative that you've seen as a result of the COVID crisis. It doesn't have to be COVID related. Um, it could be something that was created in response to it in a completely different industry. But I'm interested in what it is that you all think has been the most innovative new initiative. That's a tough one. You need to give us 24 hours to think about that. Take, take your time. I can go first. Uh, I've also not thought about it, but I, I do think the Zoe app that has taken off in the in the UK and other parts of the world is a really great example of crowdsourced data and the power of something super simple. Um, if you haven't been following it, it's it's a really simple mobile phone app. 
people can take a minute a day to update their status. Uh, one of the really interesting things is they were able to pretty well establish that loss of sense of smell was a key symptom for COVID-19. And they've also produced a machine learning model where you can, in theory, stick your symptoms in um, whether you've had a COVID test or not and get a relatively decent predictor of whether your symptoms are COVID or more likely flu or something else. Um, and they spun this thing up in, a, I remember, about two weeks and had millions of people using it. And so I thought it was a pretty impressive use of the you know, collective will to support research. And, and to their credit, they've continued to make the results public super quickly and, and discover new things. So that, that, was my, uh, that was what I had in mind when I posed the question. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I guess I, I can't think of anything specific, but I think that certainly those those applications um, have been, and there's a few knocking around, right? Um, I think they've been really useful. I think for me is I've, I've been involved with a few organizations that are looking just primarily because of my background, looking at how they can help with the COVID uh, response. And what I think is going to happen is actually we'll see a wave of the first wave being, okay, what is the quick applications or the quick things we can do uh, to get some insight? I think that the the big innovations are really going to come probably in the next six months where we're going to start to see, you know, all that pieces of those pieces of the puzzle start to come together and whether that's, you know, hardware technology for, um, you know, measuring, I don't know, breathing rates as an algorithm to predict early, um, you know, COVID or respiratory issues uh, all the way through to therapeutics. I think that the one thing that I do, and, and maybe it's out there, but would be great to see is almost like a, a collaboration tool in which the, you know, whether it's researchers or, the, you know, engineers as a whole can actually collaborate effort on single projects rather than doing it in isolation within their organisations um, I think that there's there's much more power uh, to that, but obviously there's there's a huge number of problems uh, surrounding that as well. You know, notably like IP and things like that. So that's my you know, sort of take home or you know trend that I think that we'll see. Um, time will tell. Yeah. I would love to say I have a great technological solution for you where, you know, Elon Musk has come in and made the Tesla of clinical trials and, you know, everyone's in it and it automatically updates overnight. Um, I, I think at the moment, though, perhaps what's been most inspiring is the social response and, um, you know, seeing most people do the right thing. And when people have the opportunity to volunteer and be altruistic in a way that is purposeful, they do so. Um, clearly, there are pockets and, and some people who don't agree with it but but where I go out and, and where I live um, you know people are broadly social distancing broadly wearing masks uh, I went to a blood donation session it was absolutely full to bursting people are desperately keen to help often at a local level um, and they they want to share and they and they want to contribute I think harnessing that is going to be a very powerful tool and actually there's a risk that if we make it too centrist too techno utopian too Oh, you know, someone's come along and made one one app to control them all. That will actually be missing a trick, um, because I think you know where the, the the most profound things have happened is where people want to protect their family and protect their neighbours and protect their community. And I think the sense in which we're able to make research more local is likely to be one of the uh, the, the greatest benefits we can we can get from this and uh, continue to work on. 
That's excellent. Great. I think it's a, it's a perfect one to end on. So if people want to get in touch with either of you or, or follow you, Paul, I know you're uh, Paul like me on Twitter. You don't have to give out your email address or anything like that. You certainly can. And that's because that's I used to work at patients like me. It's not because I'm desperate to be liked. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Liam? Do you, maybe it's do you use any? No, I have zero. I should probably should do. I have zero social. It's the most I go is uh, LinkedIn. Um, but yeah. I need to get on that that, that uh, bandwagon. You're, you're not missing. Late. You're not missing too much. Well, great. Thanks both of you. I really appreciate you taking the time. 